Hello, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. Surveillance technology is in our homes, cars, and pockets, and is already used in various ways, like customizing our shopping experience or helping us navigate traffic. But we're only beginning to understand the extent of the data being collected on individuals and the scope of ways it can be used, particularly in China. In China, new reports are suggesting a new level of mass surveillance being implemented by the government to track the Muslim minority in Xinjiang province, the country's far western region. According to these reports, massive amounts of private data are collected from facial recognition cameras and mobile apps aimed at tracking the habits and movements of the Uyghur population and other minority groups. The Chinese government claims that the surveillance measures are needed to protect ordinary citizens from terrorist groups, but many international observers say that Beijing is engaging in an act of ethnic cleansing. In this episode of Asia in Depth, we are joined again by BuzzFeed News international correspondent Megha Rajagopalan, who was on the podcast last fall to discuss China's surveillance technology. Today, she gives us an update on the use of surveillance in Xinjiang alongside Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, an investigative journalist who covers China for Axios. They recently discussed their work during an event hosted by Asia Society Switzerland's Nico Luxinger. During the conversation, they explain the difference between generalized surveillance in China and the specialized surveillance that is being used in Xinjiang, as well as how personal data is being used against the Uyghur community, the rise of re-education camps, and more. Raja Gopalan begins the conversation giving a bit of historical context on clashes between the Communist Party government and the Muslim minorities in the region. Since the the Communist Party came to power in 1949, relations between um, the the government and the Muslim minorities in that region, particularly Uyghurs, have been pretty fraught. And um, you know, since about like I, I guess like the most recent chunk of that history starts in 2009, where there were sort of like race riots in Urumqi, which is the capital of the region. Um, this region also saw a series of knife and bomb attacks around 2013 and 2014. So um, there was a lot of tension, um, even predating the current crackdown. But when we start to talk about um, the issues that we're going to discuss today around mass surveillance, targeting Muslims in the region, and the growth of uh, mass internment camps and forced labor, that really starts around 2017, when um, there's a new party boss, uh, the top official in the region, who took over named Chen Chuanguo. Um, who came from Tibet and applied a lot of the kind of philosophy and tactics that he used against Tibetans um, there to Muslims in Xinjiang. So since 2017, we've seen sort of a rising campaign of mass surveillance spanning everything from facial recognition um, and uh, mandatory DNA checks all the way to cell phone surveillance and use of algorithms to um, determine, you know, people's whether people get detained and sort of how long for they get detained for and and that sort of thing um and we've also seen um the crackdown takes just sort of an enormous toll on families in the region um and sort of expand in in terms of its scope and purpose um you know starting as something that was largely branded as an anti-security measure to something that has now sort of clearly become um an effort to uh kind of erase the cultural and religious identities of uh, the Muslim minorities that live in the region. Thank you very much. Let me just quickly follow up on something you said, which is something I've, I've personally wondered about for some time. So you mentioned that there was a really pronounced change with the arrival of the new party boss, Chen Chang Guo, in, mm-hmm. in 2017. So I'm not sure if there's an answer to this or if we know this, but to which extent are these changes in 2017 part of a larger strategy and to which part is it just, you know, 
basically a, a personnel issue and somebody being moved to this province who you know has a, has a different view. So how much was he moved there because the intent was to do so, or was he just moved there for other reasons and then implemented strategies he had used before? Do we know that? Um, it's a good question. I think um, the answer to that is that it's it's very clear at this point that the policies adopted in Xinjiang were not, um, you know, they're, they're not the responsibility of any particular individual within the Xinjiang government itself, even the top official. So mm-hmm. Chen Chuanguo adapted a lot of uh, policies, like notably grid-style policing that were established in Tibet, um, but that is just a style of policing. Like the overall kind of strategy and campaign um, that the government has adopted in Xinjiang um, um, goes straight to the, the kind of most elite echelons of the Chinese government. Bethany's reported on this, the New York Times has reported on this as well. There are leaked documents that show very clearly that um, aspects of these policies appear in um, speeches by Xi Jinping and other top leaders in China. Bethany, you helped publish the China Cables, which is really a trove of government documents um, that are outlining a lot of the policies that, that Mega has just tried to, to summarize for us. Um, the publication happened late last year. Um, there's a lot in it, and, and we won't be able to cover everything in detail during this webcast, but could you maybe just talk about the two, three key takeaways that you personally have from these studies? So what are the things that you did not know before you got these documents um, that were new to you at the time? So um, I would say that there was one big area of completely new knowledge in, or almost completely new knowledge in those documents. Uh, And that relates to something called IJOP, which is the Integrated Joint Operations Platform. It's hard to explain in brief what it is because it's something new that hasn't existed before in the world uh, that that exists. And it's, it's kind of a, you could call it um, detention by algorithm or uh, arrest by algorithm. It, it's a, a massive pre-crime or pre-terrorism um, kind of prediction uh, platform. It's based on uh, mass data collection and mass surveillance. That information is plugged into IJOP, which is itself a, a very large physical thing probably based in Beijing, that processes this, you know, massive amounts of data. Because, you know, the, the thing with mass surveillance and mass data collection is it's not that hard to blanket, you know, a whole region with cameras. That's a technical issue. But what do you do when you have that much data? How do you use it? And so IJOP has been working on integrating that mass surveillance and mass data collection uh, with, with processing the data and then using the data and connecting that to individual police Um, security bureaus throughout Xinjiang. So how it works is there is an app on uh, police officers' phones in, in in every region of Xinjiang, and it connects to the big IJOP brain. And it's a two, it's a sort of a two-way street. So every day or you know, every period of time or when there's some new findings from IJOP, IJOP will send literal, literally push notifications to the to this app. Uh, you know, to the correct uh, district where these people are located, uh, you know, and the na- people's names will pop up on the app. So the police officers then have to go to these people's homes, fill out a bunch of questions on the app, and that information gets sent back to IGOP. And if it is determined to be the correct um, step, then that person may be sent into a detention camp. Um, and also, IGOP can be queried. You can ask it questions, uh, you know, based on whatever you know whatever you might you might want or need now it's it's important to understand that this is a work in progress 
uh, which, and it will never be, it's hard to imagine a world in which it's perfect in some way. Uh, but that's not the point. The, the point isn't for the Chinese government to get everyone who has committed an actual crime or what the Chinese government views as a crime, which is, you know, for example, uh, praying five times a day. Oh, that makes you a pre-terrorist, basically. Rather, the point of this app is to give everyone in Xinjiang the sense that the state is everywhere. It's in your bedroom. It knows when you turn your light switch on and off. It knows how many people are in your home. It knows if you go out your front door or your back door. It knows how much gas you put in your car. Um, it knows where you travel. It knows everything about you. Um, or, or you believe that it does. More importantly, you believe that it does. And so that fills you with constant fear of doing anything beyond what the Chinese government allows you to do, which in the, the case of Uyghurs is you know, of almost nothing. Um, many, you know, many Uyghurs have been put into detention camps just basically for being Uyghur. Uh, let me share with you one specific detail from, so we obtained four uh, classified intelligence briefings that were the write-ups of these daily reports from IJOP. And these were sent out to uh, every, every district, every region in Xinjiang, writing up the results of IJOP produced names and information and the results of investigation. So here's one specific little snapshot of that. It's from June 2017, and it, it goes... Um, in the period between June 14th and June 21st, 2017, IJOP produced the names of 24,000 and some odd number of people. Uh, after investigation, 16,000 and some odd of those people were put into education and training, in other words, concentration camps. The end. What does that mean? In the period of one week, 16,000 lives were ruined because of an algorithm. That's what's happening in Xinjiang. That was one week, three years ago. So that's what, that's what uh, people are, are going through. And the rest of that particular classified intelligence briefing was dedicated to a six-point analysis of why the other 8,000 people were not put in the camps. What were the barriers preventing those people from also being put in the camps? So this is the reality for people in Xinjiang. Let me, let's maybe um, stick right to this topic, and, and I want to turn it again to Mega. So we now get a more complete and, and more terrifying, if I may say so, picture of, of the situation in Xinjiang. Now, we know that in China, generally throughout China, there is and, and increasingly has been more you know, sorts of tech, technology being used for surveillance. Um, even you know, sort of in, in, in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, we've seen a lot of this happening now with the with the coronavirus apps that people are, are sometimes sometimes um, required to download. So, Mega, can you talk a little bit about about sort of the qualitative differences of the surveillance the way it exists all over China and the surveillance how it exists in Xinjiang? You know how how is it different? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so Bethany has sort of alluded to this already, but when we're talking about mass surveillance, there's three, there's sort of like three parts to this chain. So like one is collection of the data because it's mass surveillance and not targeted. It's on a, on a large scale, right? For people who are not necessarily suspected of doing anything wrong or anything like that. The second is processing the data, which is what IJOP and other things like it are for. And the third is acting on the data. 
So the collection of the data part, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is already happening on a large scale in many other parts of China. So for instance, um, Human Rights Watch has done a lot of work on this. Um, they've documented the existence of something called the police cloud, which is uh, sort of similar to the IJOP. It's, uh, it's sort of a centralized um, database or it's like a centralized structure where um, data like sort of things like travel data, health records, uh, other kinds of personal data are um, collected about individuals um, by law enforcement services within China. Um, documents that have been published by like by Chinese authority uh, uh, Chinese authorities about police cloud have made clear that part of the purpose of this is to to track dissidents um, and um, other ethnic minorities, right? Um, and there, there's other things like this, like, um, you know, everybody here probably knows about the social credit system. Social credit system is quite different because um, it's not specifically for the purpose of um, dissidents or ethnic minorities. It's more of a data collection. It's a set of data collection systems that, um, you know, target people based on um, all sorts of other personal traits. Um, you know, like the, the big question to me is like, how do these different uh, surveillance systems actually fit together, to what extent are, or to, like, which central government authorities are able to access that data, what levels of data security are there. Um, all of that stuff is, um, is, is pretty, pretty gray, I think, pretty fuzzy. Um, and then to the second and third parts about how is this data being processed and um, how is it being used. So um, the processing part of the data, to me, that's the most interesting thing. Um, I went to a lecture, sorry, not a lecture, a talk um, last year by a senior executive at a company called Hikvision. Um, so Hikvision is the world's largest maker of uh, surveillance cameras. Um, and they used to make just normal CCTV cameras. I think they probably still do, but um, right now their focus is really on uh, video analytics and kind of uh, like facial recognition, um, image analysis, like uh, gate, gate, gate recognition, all sorts of other ways to um, use an algorithm to sort of uh, uh, analyze uh, individuals and, and, and vehicles and things like that on video. And he sort of, he said as sort of the central point of his speech that when Hikvision started, their central problem that they were trying to solve is how to, uh, how to collect enough data to ensure security. And he said that problem has completely changed. And now the, the real question is about how to process um, all of those images. And um, it's, it's clear that like from the public statements of executives at uh, many Chinese technology companies that work in the surveillance state that, um, you know, they're putting a lot of resources into solving that problem and they've gotten a lot better at it. Um, so, you know, if you look at government contracts in other parts of China, it's, it's clear that, um, you know, they, they certainly have the ability to collect and process the data on a wide scale. And the third thing is implementation. You know, how do, how do uh, law enforcement authorities actually use the data that they're collecting? And that to me is where the central difference between Xinjiang and the rest of China come in. Um, so in Xinjiang, there is a lot of evidence, uh, you know, that the government is using data um, collected about individuals to make decisions about whether or not they should be detained. And if they're not being detained, whether they should be allowed to travel abroad, allowed to have a passport, allowed to have certain kinds of jobs, um, allowed to travel from town to town, for instance, whether they're under de facto house arrest. All of these decisions about people's um, sort of everyday lives are made using data that is gleaned from surveillance. Now, not all of this is high tech surveillance. It's not necessarily from your cell phone, um, you know, although like, um, that's a big part of it. Um, 
you know, there's a leaked document uh, called uh, about about people um, from a region called Karakash who were detained, and it includes sort of the reasons that people were detained. And a lot of it is stuff like they had WhatsApp on their phone and stuff like that. For me personally, in uh, the interviews that I've done with ex-detainees, this is also sort of a very common reason. But even beyond that, there's a large um, kind of system that predates uh, the, this kind of post-2017 era that relies a lot on just like analog data collection, um, stuff that they would have been doing in, you know, the 50s or the 60s. They could have done this stuff. Um, you know, somebody comes to your house and interviews you, or you go through a checkpoint in your car and they interview you and say, well, did you pray today? Um, you know, do you practice your religion? How spiritual are you? Um, almost everybody that I um, talked to who were former detainees, this is some, probably something like uh, three dozen people at this point, um, also that the, before they were detained, they were subject to interviews about their behavior and stuff like that. And that all of this stuff was sort of entered, um, you know, into a computer. Um, so what I would say is to bring it back to this question of like what's happening in the rest of China. Um, it's not my understanding that interviews like that are being conducted with the same level of regularity and rigor uh, for just ordinary Han people elsewhere in China. But I think data collection, th there's lots of evidence that data collection is happening on a large scale. Uh, when you're talking about things like biometrics, there's literally no way for someone to consent to that. Like you cannot consent if there is a facial recognition camera in the public park outside of your home. Um, and that's not specific to China, that's anywhere. Um, so there's lots and lots of data that's being collected without people's consent. Um, it's almost certainly being processed. Um, the question is sort of like when and how um, are authorities going to use it? Mm. And we're sort of already very deep into the technology conversation, but I do want to ask one question, Bethany, that's maybe not directly related to technology, but because it's come up a couple of times now, what do we know in terms of structured information, what is happening in the camps that both of you have mentioned? So we know they're there. You've given us an example of, you know, how many people just in one week have, um, uh, have, have been sent there. But it seems like there's very little secured information of what people are doing in these camps, how long they're staying, if, when they're getting out, if at all. So from the China cables and, and other information, what can you tell us? What do we know? What's what's going on in these gaps? Sure. So one of the most important sources for information about what's happening in the camps uh, comes from people who survived the camps and then left China and then spoken with journalists or other people who are chronicling their experiences. Uh, and, and another, but another source of information about what's happening in the camps is what we um, received with the China cables, which we, we received a 24-page document um, referred to as the Telegram, which is essentially the, the official operating manual for, for the camps that was disseminated by, uh, by the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang. And um, according, to, so according to that document, um, how the party views the camps, it is clear that they are highly securitized, that people are not permitted to, to leave, that, that they, they go there um, uh, not, by free, not by their own free will and they are not permitted to, to leave. They, uh, the, a primary purpose of the camps, according to the Chinese government, is more or less brainwashing. You know, they, they call it education. It's called vocational training. Or they call them vocational training centers. Uh, they, they put them through intense political indoctrination classes where people are made to renounce their religion, um, swear allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, learn 
Mandarin, the Chinese language, um, improve their, their Mandarin skills, which sounds nice, except you have to understand that this is happening amidst a cultural genocide when the Chinese government wants to reduce or eliminate the Uyghurs' reliance on their, on their own language. Um, so that's officially what's happening um, in, in the camps. But if you talk to people who've been through them, these are, I mean, they are subjected to terrible torture. Um, Sometimes, I mean, what I've described is already psychological torture, but I mean actual real physical torture. People's fingernails being ripped out, um, you know, people be, I won't get into the details, but just whatever you can imagine. Um, also, there are definitely witness accounts of people dying in the camps due to terrible medical care, overcrowding, um, and, and, and like that. So we, what we also know is that people are given injections and made to take pills that seem to render them sterile. Uh, women's hair is being uh, often cut off. Uh, and, you know, having long hair is a really important part of Uyghur culture. Um, so it's, it's a whole system by which people are removed from their, ripped away from their families, made to uh, undergo highly stressful um, brainwashing sessions, and they're there for an indefinite amount of period, uh, amount of time. So the, the documents that we received said they need to be there for a minimum of one year, um, and they need to, in order to be released, they also need to be deemed, um, you know, essentially no longer dangerous to society, or that they have you know, racked up enough points in, this, in, a, in a point system that's put in the camps that, you know, makes them safe to, to leave. Uh, however, another thing that we've learned about the camps is that they kind of are feeding into a forced or coerced labor system. So even when people leave, many of them are not going back into their regular normal lives. They're being put into factory work where they are paid, uh, they're often underpaid, and they are often forced to live in the dorms, rarely allowed to leave, under constant surveillance, under the watch of security guards, and still being put into political indoctrination classes and Chinese language classes in the evenings. All of this together, combined with um, a major report from the Associated Press uh, last week, which documents a campaign of mass sterilization and forced abortion, comes together to create a picture of, of, of actual, literal genocide uh, a, a physical, you know, shrinking of the population, purposeful shrinking of the population and, and of their cultural identity, and family separation, mass sterilizations, uh, trying to erase the culture, and then basically preventing new births by, by ripping husbands and wives apart. We're going to take a short break here to talk about Asia Society's online programming. Though you may not be able to come to us, as most of our physical locations around the world remain closed, Asia Society is still coming to you, putting on world-class conversations and programming accessible from the comfort of your home via live webcasts. You can check out the full slate of our upcoming digital events from all our locations at asiasociety.org online. That's asiasociety.org online. Now let's get back to the conversation. I do want to definitely stay with you for a moment and, and talk about the China cables itself and sort of the, 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 the process of reporting on them. Um, I'm going to ask you this question that we discussed before that I know you can't answer, but I'm still going to ask you, um, where, did this, where did these documents come from? It seems remarkable to me that the Chinese government compared to the US government and maybe other governments doesn't generally leak. And then last year, 
in the periods of literally weeks, there were two big leaks that were being published. One was the one you led and the other one was by the New York Times. So again, you're not going to tell us where they came from. That's fine. But talk a bit about sort of the significance of these leaks happening. Why did they happen when they happened? And do you think we'll see more in the future? Yeah. So I, I, as you said, I, I cannot comment on sourcing. I can't comment on how uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists uh, came by the documents, but I, I can say where they originated. And they came from the Zheng Fa Wei, the Chinese Communist Party Xinjiang Autonomous Region Political and Legal Affairs Committee. Um, so that it came from a, a party organ, and it was disseminated throughout Xinjiang to all the regional party offices. So that's, that's where the document uh, came from. How we went about verifying it, we, we extensively verified it in many different ways. And I'll go through some of the ways that we authenticated the documents. Uh, we spoke with people who are familiar with and indeed um, specialize in dealing with classified Chinese government and party documents. And we showed them these documents and said, are these authentic? And, you know, I, in my interviews with these people, they went through point by point by point all the reasons that they appear to be authentic and that there is nothing about them that would cast any kind of suspicion on, uh, on their uh, provenance. Um, that we, we compared carefully what was in the documents to what survivors of the camps have said and found it to be you know, just um, very parallel there. We compared, we did a careful um, uh, date analysis. So the telegram, for example, and all of the classified um, briefings uh, were from 2017. The telegram was from November 2017 and the classified briefings were from June 2017. Well, what happened right before June 27, like right before June 2017? Well, the, the person who is in charge of the, the Zheng Fa Wei, the um, Political and Legal Affairs Committee in Xinjiang, whose name is uh, Zhu Haiwen, he had just completed a, a, a sort of a circuit throughout Xinjiang looking at things and talking about some of the issues that appeared in the telegram using some of the specific jargon that appeared in the telegram. Now he's the one who, his name is on the telegram. He wrote it, or at least he, he ratified and approved it. So we see that he, he publicly started speaking about some of the terms and some of the concepts that appeared in the document right around the same time. So these are the ways that, you know, some of the ways, and there were other ways that we authenticated as well, but these are some of the ways that we very, very rigorously went through to make sure that these documents were authentic. Just, I, I think you've laid out um, very nicely this process um, of authentication. Just briefly to touch upon, what was, there was an official response from the Chinese government to it. What was it and how would you classify it? So when we reached out, when ICIJ reached out to the Chinese government, and, and we did that in multiple ways. So as you know, ICIJ is a consortium. We worked, I, I worked, I mean, I, I led a team of journalists in 14 different countries. And so journalists from most of those countries reached out before we published 
to the Chinese embassy in their country. So we're already at like, you know, a, a dozen attempts to contact the government. We also reached out directly to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. We also attempted to reach a couple of different offices in Urumqi, which is the, the capital of Xinjiang. So we, we gave them plenty of advance notice. And in fact, we even provided copies of the documents to say, this is what we have. We did not receive ICIJ did not receive any official response directly from the Chinese government. However, after the documents were published, um, some Chinese uh, government, uh, some diplomats and spokespeople did comment on them publicly. The Chinese ambassador to the, to the UK, what's his name, Liu Xiaoming? Something like that, sorry. The Chinese ambassador to the, to the UK, I think he, he dismissed them as fabrications. I can't quite remember the exact wording. And uh, so did the, the spokesperson in Beijing. They said, you know, these are, it's smearing China, you know, all the, the usual, they, they just, you know, trotted out the usual phrases to say that this was not real. Mm. Mega, you, of course, you're also still reporting on Xinjiang, even though um, you, you haven't been on the ground for a while now. Can you talk a little bit how you do that? So it's obviously, um, and, and I think sort of what Bethany just told us makes this clear, it's not exactly easy to get like security information from the ground and the Chinese government isn't necessarily forthcoming in providing such information to journalists. So you have to find other ways. So how are you, how are you getting the information that you have? And again, also, how are you making sure that it's as accurate as you, as you can, as you can be? Yeah, um, so I guess just to give an idea of what it's like to actually report on the ground in Xinjiang, it's, um, it's obviously it's better to have access than to not, which is true of just about any story. Um, having said that, uh, it's, it's a real trial to report there. Um, if you are uh, an accredited journalist in China, um, you will have like a, um, what's called a J visa, which is like a journalist visa in your passport. Um, essentially, when you get to Xinjiang, all of the times that you have to show your passport, which is like at roadside checkpoints, like when you check into a hotel, like anytime a police officer asks you, they're going to see that you're a journalist because they're going to see that visa on your passport. And as soon as someone figures out that you're a journalist, then um, they're probably going to follow you. Uh, sorry, I should have said this is like a sort of police officers in whatever town or city you're in uh, will probably follow you to see what you're doing. Um, the purpose of this is to, first of all, to intimidate you and then also to to really to intimidate anyone who, who might cooperate, anybody that you might talk to, um, and um, just to make it sort of impossible to do the work. Um, the last time I was in Xinjiang, it was sort of, uh, this had not become the sort of big international media spectacle that it has now become. So um, there was sort of a, there was a little bit less of a, um, a high alert there. Um, I think now uh, it, it would be significantly different, but but even back then, like, I mean, there's been no time, you know, I've, I've been working in China on and off since about 2011, and there, there was no time period in that chunk of time where um, it was easy to report there, where people weren't, um, you know, being followed, being threatened, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, so now that I don't have access anymore, um, it is hard because when you're trying to document things about physical facts on the ground, you can't just go there. Uh, so like, for instance, if, I, if somebody has, if I've done an interview with someone and they said, well, the place that I was, um, the place that I was held, or um, you know, maybe I noticed like a forced labor factory that was in a particular location, they'll say, well, it was across the street from this kindergarten, or it was like the old retirement 
permanent home um, in that town or something, then, um, you know, before to corroborate it, I might have tried to take a reporting trip and actually go there, which I have done for stories in the past. Uh, but now I would look on Google Earth um, and try to verify those facts that way or find another person who's willing to talk about it. Uh, the sort of upside about reporting on this crisis from outside um, has been that um, it's a lot easier to talk to people if they're not um, sort of immediately afraid of uh, being sent to prison or an internment camp just for talking to a journalist. Um, people are still really, really afraid to talk to journalists, like even to this day, because uh, the Chinese government puts a lot of harassment on exiles. Um, they will threaten their families with being sent to camps. Um, there are many, many cases that have been documented, um, including many of the journalists at Radio Free Asia and DC of people's families being uh, penalized for, um, you know, speaking out publicly about their experiences and about their families' experiences. Um, so it is still a bit of a tall order, but um, the positive thing is like there, there's now a kind of steady flow of exiles from Xinjiang in uh, places like Kazakhstan, Turkey, even several places in Western Europe. And all of those people, um, they have a, a, a quite a bit more liberty to be able to speak. And um, the more of these exiles there are that are willing to put their thoughts into the public domain, um, the more good information that we have, the more ability that we have to sort of corroborate stories against each other and find patterns and, um, you know, sort of get a better picture of what the, these experiences are really like. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of what I've tried to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're already sort of nearing the end of this first part of the conversation. Before we continue with a few last questions, just want to remind people um, listening in, uh, I'm very sorry we're not going to be able to answer all the questions you've submitted. But again, if you are a member of Asia Society Switzerland and you're not yet signed up for the Q&A starting immediately afterwards, just post a quick note in the chat and, and somebody will sign you up and we can talk about more there. Um, Bethany, I want to pick up on something that Mega just said, which is that obviously this is a story on the international level that's been developing. And, and when Mega started writing about this, it wasn't yet, it hadn't yet received as much attention as it has today. So it seems to me very, very obviously that when it comes to the international media reporting, we see more. We've seen more over the last few years. There's been you know, uh, also a lot, thanks to the work that the both of you have done, there's been a lot more reporting on this issue than there has been before. However, this is not, or this does not seem to have yet translated into a more uh, forceful response from the international community on the issue. Why? I think that's uh, largely because the Chinese government has learned how to weaponize access to its markets and, and to, uh, you know, to its borders. So everyone understands that the genocide that is occurring in Xinjiang is a very firm red line. It's very sensitive for the Chinese Communist Party. And if you are a business that has, you know, interests in, in Xinjiang, if you are an academic who hasn't gotten tenure yet and relies on access to China uh, for your research, if you are, um, I mean, just, uh, if you are a, a small nation or even a medium-sized nation or even a large nation who is dependent on China for trade, for infrastructure deals, for financing, or any range of possible, um, you know, sort of bilateral relations. If you if you're dependent on China or feel that it's important to you, you know that speaking out on Xinjiang will come with real world consequences. Probably, you know, potentially being blocked from that market, having that uh, infrastructure trade deal um, canceled, having your your politicians um, uh, sort of stonewalled, in having your diplomats stonewalled in trying to deal with China. And they have been able to con convey this 
very effectively around the world. So there comes a, a high, high cost with speaking out, even just speaking, even literally talking about what's happening in Xinjiang, much less taking actual measures. Now, the U.S. government has, in uh, the past year or two, done a much better job of being more vocal about what's happening in Xinjiang, and in fact, has taken some actual measures. So, for example, putting um, several dozen Chinese entities, you know, government uh, bureaus, police security bureaus, and certain companies such as Hikvision and others on a, an export blacklist so that U.S. companies can't export to them. In other words, trying to prevent, to some extent, U.S. companies from being complicit in that. We're now seeing um, you know, the C uh, Customs and Border Protection being more active in stopping shipments of goods that are believed to have been made with forced labor. That's a very difficult process to do that, but we're seeing more of that. However, what I would like to note is that these are mainly symbolic actions. So the U.S. has a very specific mechanism by which it could potentially, if it wanted to, cripple Chinese, China's economy because of, because of its genocidal activities. And that's through the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, which allows um, the U.S. government to very quickly and easily levy sanctions on Chinese government officials and entities that are able, that are complicit in mass human rights violations. This was implemented, I believe, in 2016 or 2015, the Global Magnitsky Act, and it was, it was created explicitly, specifically, for this exact kind of purpose, when a government and government officials are complicit in mass human rights violations. And it has not been used. Why not? Well, in an interview with Axios a few weeks ago, President Trump said that he had not put uh, sanctions on China because of its camps in Xinjiang because he wanted to pursue uh, better terms for a trade deal. So even the world's largest economy, you know, perceive that the, the you know the president perceives um, that this would be damaging essentially economically for for the U.S. Mm -hmm. So just to wrap up, what I would like to say is that the institutions and organizations that were created after World War II to prevent genocide or to to punish those who commit it are failing terribly. In fact, the UN Secretary General himself has never once condemned the genocide that's occurring in Xinjiang. Thank you very much. And we're already only a few minutes away from, from ending this first session. So there's, um, there's, there's so many questions that I didn't get to ask that we're going to have to talk about in the Q&A. Let me end with this question to both of you. And I know there's probably going to be so many, so many different answers to it. So I would ask you to just pick maybe the, the top two or three. We've talked so much about the things we've learned and the things your reporting has shown us about Xinjiang. Uh, we've talked about you know, sort of the, the process of that reporting. We've talked about the international response and what it has been and what it could be and perhaps should be. Um, but you're both, you know, at heart, you're journalists, you're reporters, you're, you're trying to uncover more. So what are the questions that you are still trying to get answered? What do we not yet know um, about Xinjiang that you think would be really, really helpful to know? Uh, maybe Mega, if you want to start, and then Bethany can finish. Oh my God, there's so much. There's just so much that we don't know. Um, 
I think for me, the central question is like, what is the true scale of this program and uh, what is its future? Mm -hmm. Which we, we have sort of partial answers to that. Um, there have been a lot of, I mean, there, the current estimate is like sort of ranges from um, a million or just above a million and even beyond that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of like very, um, there's a lot of factors that haven't um, been factored into these estimates. Um, a lot of them are from extrapolation, which of course is that's the only way we can get there. But, um, you know, there's a revolving door at these camps. Some people are moved to higher security facilities. Other people are, are uh, shifted to de facto house arrests. Like, um, you know, are we talking about a stagnant population or a mobile population? Um, you know, another thing I want to know is sort of like, what, yeah, what's really the true goal of the campaign? Um, are we talking about something that um, is leading to a more violent situation, like systematic state-driven violence? Like, are we talking about um, a campaign that is leading primarily to forced labor? Are there other goals that we're not seeing yet? Um, I guess those would be my big two. All right, Bethany, um, that's already a, a pretty good list from Mega. What, what would you add to that? I want to know how many people have died. We know that some people have died, but we don't have any idea the scale. Is it, is it a thousand people who've been killed by police forces in the past three years? Is it 10,000? Is it 100,000? We don't have any way of knowing. Um, and, and one reason we don't have any way of knowing, but b besides the to almost total information black void that Xinjiang is, uh, is that they built a lot of crematorium, a crematoria um, across Xinjiang. Now, that sounds scary, It could be that they built, you know, many crematoria because they wanted to, uh, it, it's another way of um, uh, erasing Uyghur custom. So according to Uyghur custom, you don't cremate bodies, you bury them and they want to, you know, basically erase Uyghur traditions. So maybe it's sort of this sort of modernization campaign. But if people are dying on a, you know, a relatively large scale and you just burn the bodies, there's no mass graves that we can identify by satellite. You know, sort of a basic way of perhaps trying to figure out if there's mass, mass de actual deaths happening. Um, that would be a, a top question for me, in addition to what Mega already said, which I strongly agree with. That's all for this week's episode of Asian Depth. For more, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Michelle Fleur Cruz. See you next time.